invite you now to turn to John 21, 20 through 25, as we come now to our conclusion of the series on the Gospel of John. John chapter 21, we're going to be reading in verses 21 through 25. And if you remember, the Lord has just restored Peter. He asked Peter if he loved him, and then he told Peter to feed his lambs, and then he told Peter, follow me. John 21, verse 20 says this, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And thus concludes the Gospel of John. In these final verses of the Gospel of John, we're going to see this morning two warnings, two witnesses, and two wonders. The two warnings are in verses 20 through 23, and the warnings are to avoid distracting comparisons and to avoid distracting rumors. We need to avoid distracting comparisons, and we need to avoid distracting rumors. Back in verses 15 through 17 in the preceding context, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus had commanded Peter three times, Peter, shepherd my sheep, tend my lambs, take care of my flock. And then in verse 19, he gives Peter a command, follow me. But instead of keeping his focus on Jesus at that crucial moment. Verse 20 says that Peter turned around and saw John. I want you to notice the contrast between verse 19 and verse 20. At the end of verse 19, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. And the first thing that, G that Peter does in response is to turn away from Jesus and look towards John. This is significant because his focus has shifted. His focus has shifted away from Jesus and onto John. His focus has shifted away from his calling and his destiny, and now his focus is on John's calling and John's destiny. Peter's focus has shifted away from the Lord's command and onto his own curiosity. Jesus tells Peter, Peter, follow me, and Peter's response is to turn away from Christ, look at John and say, but what about him? What about him? Peter once again has lost focus. And I said once again because this is the second time 
in chapter 21 that Jesus has to confront Peter for losing focus. If you recall from last week, Jesus had called Peter to be a fisher of men. But when the disciples were waiting there at the Sea of Galilee, Jesus had told them to go to the Sea of Galilee and wait for him. And as they waited and he didn't come, Peter got impatient and just said, well, I'm going fishing. And the rest of them went with him. His focus had shifted from being a fisher of men back to being a fisher of fish. And so Jesus has to refocus him. And he does that in verses 15 through 17, and then he tells them, Peter, you're even going to give your life for following me, but follow me. Now Peter loses focus again. Right after hearing that, he turns and his focus shifts again, away from his calling onto his curiosity. Peter loses focus twice in the chapter, and twice his focus has to be reoriented by Christ. Jesus is gently warning him here against losing sight of his calling, against being distracted. Peter, you need to refocus on following me. So he gives him two warnings, and the first warning is to avoid distracting comparisons. Peter, turning around, verse 20 says, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And in verse 21, it says, he said then to Jesus, Lord, what about him? What about this guy? Right? You've told me I'm going to die for my faith. What about John? What's going to happen to him? Jesus is going to show him he needs to avoid distracting comparisons. We don't know why Peter asked this question. Was it simple curiosity? Like, you know, the Lord had just revealed to him what, would, what his destiny would be. Maybe he was just simply curious what would happen to John. Maybe it was an even more noble motive. Maybe he had genuine concern for John. Wow, Lord, you just told me I'm going to die for my faith. What's going to happen to John? Maybe it was genuine concern for a friend. But regardless of whether it was mere curiosity or genuine concern, Jesus knew that answering that question would cause Peter to lose focus. If Jesus had revealed John's destiny to Peter, it would have created a great temptation for Peter to compare his destiny and John's. Who has it harder and who has it easier? Who will have the prominence and who will be less prominent, who will be the greatest and who will be second. Keep in mind for three years, the disciples have been arguing over who will be the greatest, who will have the most impact, who will receive the most honor from the Lord. Jesus doesn't want Peter's focus to shift onto a comparison between his destiny and John's. Curiosity can lead to comparison, and comparison can lead to competition. The last thing the fledgling Christian church needed at this point was for Peter and John to be comparing one another and competing with one another. So Jesus responds to Peter in verse 22, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Peter, you're going to die and if I want John to have it easy peasy and to stay alive until I come again 
and not even face death at all, what is that to you? He's telling Peter, mind your own business. Or maybe more accurately, mind your own assignment. Mind your own calling. Mind your own role in the body of Christ. Mind your own purpose. The purpose I've given you. Don't be distracted by comparisons. What is that to you, Peter? You follow me. See, you need to be focused on whether or not you're doing what I've commanded you to do, going where I lead you, fulfilling the purpose and destiny I have for you. Don't get your eyes on other people. Do you know how much of the Christian life is spent for most people being distracted by comparisons with others? It's a huge issue for all of us. I remember as a boy reading a book called The Horse and His Boy. It's part of the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. And in The Horse and His Boy, there's a boy named Shasta, and Shasta has a really hard early life. But then he, at one point in the book, meets Aslan. Aslan is the lion in the story which represents Jesus. And Aslan is talking to Shasta and telling Shasta that he had been involved in all of those key events in his life. C.S. Lewis writes, as Aslan is talking to Shasta, quote, Shasta, I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you would reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay a child near death so that it came to shore where a kind man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. Shasta, hearing that Aslan had been involved and even sovereign over these events in his life, remembers another incident in his life, a time when his friend Aravis had been wounded by a lion. And he so he says, well, then was it you who wounded Aravis? And Aslan says, it was I. But what for? Shasta asks. Child, said Aslan, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. What is C.S. Lewis trying to get through there? He's trying to teach children what John 21, 22 teaches. Child, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but their own. I think C.S. Lewis had John 21, 22 in mind as he wrote those words. What is that to you? You follow me. Stop comparing yourself with others or being distracted by their destiny when you should be focused on following me. The point is that we should have our eyes on Jesus and our focus on following him and fulfilling our own calling, not let our eyes get on others. See, when sheep are following the shepherd, there's a great temptation for them to get their eyes off of the shepherd and onto each other. 
But if that happens, then if someone else strays, you'll stray right along with them. Keep your eyes on the shepherd, not the sheep. Do you know the number one reason why people leave churches? People. People leave churches because of people. It's kind of interesting. They go to church and it suddenly at some point dawns on them that everyone else is a sinner. You know, someone says something, does something, and it like dawns on them. I'm in a church filled with sinners, wicked people, evil people. Yes, <laughs> yes. You know, the preacher is a sinner, the person next to you is a sinner. Welcome to the club. People leave churches because of people. But why? Because their eyes are off of Christ, the shepherd, and onto the stinky sheep. I stink, you stink, we all stink. It's going to be the new motto for our church, right? <laughs> you know, see, this is what happens. You know, we're going to do our mission statement, you know, and no one's going to remember our mission statement. They're just going to remember, I stink, you stink, we all stink. <laughs> right, don't get your focus off of the Lord. Don't let your eyes move from the perfect one to the imperfect ones, from the shepherd to the other sheep from your calling to your curiosity or from the great commission to petty comparisons or from our great cause to our spirit of competition. Hendrickson comments on this passage. He says, Peter must not be so deeply interested in God's secret counsel that he fails to pay attention to God's revealed will. Do you realize that there is a danger in a twisted form of theological curiosity? Why does God do what he does? We know he's sovereign, right? That's what Shas is asking. Wait, wait, you're saying, Aslan, you're saying you're the one who wounded Arvis? Why? Right? Shas's mind is shifting to a misguided form of theological curiosity, and Romans 9 tells us how the Lord answers that. Who, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? The clay doesn't say to the potter, why have you made me like this? Back to Hendrickson. Peter must not be so deeply interested in God's secret counsel, right? The things that he has not revealed, that he fails to pay attention to God's revealed will. There are some people who are so consumed by theoretical theology that they completely neglect practical theology. Their minds are in esoteric things and they are missing the practice hospitality teaching of Scripture, the share the gospel teaching of Scripture, the love one another passages of Scripture, the forgive one another passages. Hendrickson continues, this is a lesson which every believer in every age should take to heart. There is work to be done. There are souls to be reached. There is a task to be accomplished. Let Peter rivet all his attention upon this. You know, I really appreciate when you're reading a man whose life work is to be a scholar saying, don't forget the simple, clear, practical instructions the Lord has given you. Don't let your focus be shifted. Hendrickson goes on. Some people are always asking questions. I'm, I'm guessing he had some of his seminary students in mind. They are asking so many questions. 
that their real mission in life fails to receive the proper amount of interest and energy. There are times, he says, when questions are out of line. It has been well said that a man who has been wounded by a feathered, poisoned arrow should not begin to ask, of what wood is this arrow made? What bird did these feathers come from? Was the man who shot the arrow tall or short? He says, let him do something first of all, right? Yank the arrow out first, then you can examine what kind of wood and feathers and everything else. So he says, look, this was a necessary rebuke for Peter, and the Lord's intention was to turn Peter's mind from his curiosity to his calling, end quote. Beloved, let each one of us remain laser-focused on his own calling and his own role in the body and not get distracted by comparisons with others. Is someone in the church or at work or in your family more successful than you? What is that to you? Did someone else get the ministry role you wanted or the promotion you wanted? What is that to you? You follow me. Does someone else seem to have an easy life? While yours is filled with hardship and suffering, what is that to you? You follow me. The Lord is saying, look, if John is going to have an easy life, Peter, and you're going to have a hard life, Peter, what is that to you? Get your focus back on what I just told you. Follow me. Don't compare. Don't get distracted by comparisons. Comparing yourself to others leads to what? To envy. And envy does not lead to anything good. I want you to listen as I read to you Galatians 5, 25 through 26. Now, in the context of Galatians 5, he gives a list of the fruits of the flesh, right? All of these sins. Then he gives a list of the fruit of the Spirit. Then, at, right after he gives a list of the fruit of the Spirit, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Listen to what he says next. Right after he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit, listen to the instructions that come next. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. One of the manifestations, one of the ways you can know that someone is filled with the Spirit is they don't boast in regard to others, they don't challenge or compete with others, and they're not envious of others. Comparing yourself with others leads to one of three sinful things. It either leads to boasting, right? Because if you compare yourself with someone else and you think you're better, then you boast. If you compare yourself with others and you think you're about even, then you're tempted to compete, right? You know, it's like, you know, two kids racing, you know? If one is clearly ahead, he starts boasting. If they're about neck to neck, they are competing. And if you're the kid that's falling behind, you're tempted to envy. Comparing yourself with others leads to boasting, competition, or envy. All three are sinful, evil, and destructive. 
So do not compare. Whenever you are tempted to compare, don't let your mind go there. Stay focused on Christ and your calling and being faithful with whatever the Lord entrusts to you. The Lord taught in Luke 16.10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. The Lord may have given you little. Are you faithful with little? Because see, if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. If you're unfaithful and unrighteous with little, you're griping and complaining because you have little. If you're unrighteous with little, you'll be unrighteous with much. Be faithful with what you have. What is that to you? You follow me. Second warning is in verse 23. Not only should we avoid distracting comparisons, we should avoid distracting rumors. Look at John 21, 23. Jesus had said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And then in verse 23, John asked to correct a rumor. He says, therefore this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Right, there's the rumor. John isn't going to die ever. He's going to still be alive when the Lord comes back. John corrects it. He says, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? He's like, y'all missed the point here. Avoid distracting rumors. There are many times, actually, throughout the New Testament in which the apostles have to correct rumors that were spreading amongst the brethren. Rumor spreading around is nothing new. It was happening in the early church during the time where the New Testament books were written. Apostles constantly had to write and correct these rumors or stop these rumors. Avoid distracting rumors. Oxford defines a rumor as, quote, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or doubtful truth. Now, notice some rumors turn out to be true. Others turn out to be a lie. But the reason rumors are so dangerous is because you don't know. They are of uncertain or doubtful truth. When you pass on a rumor, you may be passing on the truth or you may be guilty of a lie and you don't know. Can I tell you, as those who are people of the truth, we must be exceptionally cautious about passing on things we do not know for certain are true, lest we be guilty of spreading a lie. You know, people are prone to believing rumors and spreading them because usually rumors contain a kernel of truth. I've told this story before, but it is so appropriate here. There's a pastor I know personally, many, many, he's older than I am, and many, many years ago, he had to address from the pulpit a rumor which had been spreading throughout the church, causing great division and turmoil. And the rumor was that he was having an affair with one of the church musicians, the reason the rumor had spread throughout the congregation is that someone claimed they had seen with their own eyes the pastor embracing 
one of the female musicians backstage after church when they thought they were alone. Based on this rumor, people were talking about leaving the church. People were arguing over whether it's true or false. And even core members of the church were beginning to wonder, questioning whether these rumors could be true. Like all rumors do, they eventually made their way back around to the pastor, and it was such a big problem that he decided he had to address it publicly from the pulpit. So he stood up and admitted that the rumor was absolutely true. He had embraced one of the female musicians backstage when they thought they were alone. He went on to admit that he had actually been living with this woman, had fathered several children with her, and then he said, and so now for those of you who have not yet met my wife, I'd like her to come up on stage so that you'll realize who she is and that she serves on the worship team. I want to introduce you to her. You know, the ending of that story is, you know, maybe a little humorous in hindsight, but it certainly wasn't funny at the time. That rumor had divided the congregation, and for months they had been distracted from their mission by this rumor. Both those who believed it and those who didn't believe it had been distracted. Rumors are destructive. By the way, it's not just malicious rumors that are destructive, right? A malicious rumor is one that someone intentionally starts, right? That a liar starts in order to intentionally hurt someone or to accomplish some sort of nefarious goal that they have. But it's not just malicious rumors that are destructive. Rumors which are started and spread by well-intentioned but misinformed or partially informed people can be equally destructive. The person who started that rumor knew that they saw what they saw. They saw with their own eyes the pastor embracing a female musician backstage when they thought no one was looking. They knew what they saw. And so they shared the truth. The rumor was based upon something that was actually true, but it was an incomplete truth. It was a partial truth. Beloved, there's a lesson here. Beware of believing, spreading, arguing, getting upset, and dividing over rumors. We're actually commanded in Scripture not to speculate about things which we can't be certain about. In 2 Timothy 2.23, it says, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. So there's two warnings here in verses 20 through 23. Avoid distracting comparisons and avoid distracting rumors. Isn't it interesting that in the conclusion of the Gospel of John, there's warnings against these two things. Of all the sins that could be warned about, here's the two that are warned at the end. Don't be distracted by comparisons and don't be distracted by rumors. Well, then in verse 24, we go from two warnings to two witnesses. In verse 24, we see a testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel given by the human author and by the divine author. And I want to walk you through this. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, I want you to notice something, and that is the 
switch from the singular to the plural. In Greek, virtually every word has an ending which shows whether it's singular or plural. And at the beginning of verse 24, we see a string of singular words. This, that's singular, is, that verb is singular. The disciple, that's singular. Who, that is singular, is testifying, that's singular, and who wrote. All of those are singular. So it is clear there is one person in mind, and that is undoubtedly the human author, right? This is John saying, look, I am the one testifying to these things. I wrote them down. I'm giving my eyewitness testimony to the things written in this gospel. The beginning of verse 24 is the testimony of John, the human author. But then I want you to notice the switch from the singular to the plural, which happens right before the last phrase of the verse. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. All of that is singular. And now this, and we, there's that plural, know that his testimony is true. So here you have John. This is the disciple that is testifying and wrote these things. And now all of a sudden it's, like, it's a we. We know that his testimony is true. So the question is, who is the we? Who is the we who, is, who knows that John's testimony is true? Now, some say, and this is actually, in some senses, probably the majority view, some say the switch to the plural is just an aspect of literary style. So the we is just John referring to himself, just kind of mixing it up a bit for style's sake. But if he's mixing it up for style's sake, why would he use only singulars, then one plural, and then switch back to the singular in verse 25. In verse 25, he says, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So you have singulars at the beginning of verse 24, plural in the last phrase of verse 24, and then singular again in verse 25. It just doesn't seem to be merely a literary device. There seems to be significance to that we. We know this. We know it's true. Who is the we? Some say it refers to John and the other apostles. He's speaking collectively for all of the, tw the 12 apostles. But I don't think that's the case, and the reason why is a historical perspective. John writes this gospel in the early 90s. And it is likely that by the early 90s, John was the last living member of the original 12, or at least certainly the last one in his area. The 12 had gone off on their missionary journeys to the various parts of the world, and church history records that they were all martyred for their faith. It is very likely that by the time John writes the Gospel of John, he's the last living apostle which is probably why he had to address that rumor that he wouldn't die. All the others had died. He had not yet died. And he, he says, you know, like, don't be shocked when I die because Jesus didn't say I wasn't going to die. But I don't think the we in verse 24 refers to John and the other apostles because I think he was the last one alive. So some say, well, maybe it refers to the Ephesian elders, right? John ministered in Ephesus. Maybe he, the we is... John and the Ephesian elders, or the Ephesian elders affirming John's testimony. This is certainly possible, but there's nothing in the context to support it. 
no mention of the Ephesian church or the Ephesian elders. What is in the context? What is in the context is a statement that Jesus makes in John chapter 14, verses 25 through 26, where Jesus prophesies that the Holy Spirit would inspire Scripture and be the guarantor of the accuracy of the apostolic testimony. Look back at John chapter 14, verses 25 through 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Now notice, all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in that phrase. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then he goes on later to say that the Spirit will guide them into all the truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to inspire the apostles to accurately record what Jesus said and did, and the Holy Spirit himself would be the one who guaranteed the accuracy of the apostolic testimony. So I think the we in John 21, verse 24, is God himself. It is the divine author affirming the inerrancy of the gospel of John. The divine author is affirming what the human author has testified to. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. That's John, the human author. And we know that his testimony is true. That's the divine author affirming the accuracy of the book. Does God refer to himself in the first plural? Of course he does. First chapter of the Bible, God says, let us make man in our image. The triune God often refers to himself in the first plural. So also here, I think God uses a plural to refer to himself. We know that John's testimony is true. By the way, this interpretation that, that the we refers to the divine author is strengthened when we note that there's two verbs in Koine Greek for knowing something. The first verb for knowing is gnosko, which means to know something by being taught it or by acquiring knowledge. The second is the verb oida, which means to have full knowledge of something either by personal experience or by comprehensive and inherent knowledge. And the verb, we know that his testimony is true, is the verb oida. This is not knowledge that they acquired. It is knowledge that they had by personal experience and comprehensive knowledge. I think if the we referred to the Ephesian elders, for example, they would have used the term gnosko. We've come to know that these things are true not oida, which is we know by full knowledge, by personal experience, and by comprehensive understanding that these things are true. I think the use of the verb oida instead of gnosko adds support to the interpretation that the we in verse 24 is the Father, the Son, and especially the Holy Spirit. Because whoever the we refers to has full comprehensive, first-hand, experientially knowledge that everything written in the Gospel of John is true. So I believe this is an affirmation of the truthfulness and the inerrancy of the Gospel of John by the divine author himself.
the human author says, I'm testifying to this, and then the Lord speaks through him and says, and we know it's true. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Peter 1 says, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And I think in verse 24, we have God affirming that that's what he did. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come, promised the Holy Spirit would inspire the apostles and guide them into all truth. The apostles give their testimony, and now the Lord says, and we know this testimony is true. So I think in verse 24, we have two witnesses that the gospel is true, the human author, who was an eyewitness, and the divine author, the Lord himself. Well, two warnings, two witnesses, and now finally, as we wrap up our study of John, two wonders. Gospel of John concludes with two wonders. In these five verses, there's two things that should lead us to have awe and wonder. And the first is the imminent return of Christ, which is mentioned in verse 22, and the second is the infinite glory of Christ, which is described in verse 25. Notice in verse 22, these are the last words spoken by Jesus in the Gospel of John, and in them his return is talked about as a coming certainty. Jesus is presupposing his return in order to tell Peter, hey, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? The coming is assured. It's a certainty. So don't worry, Peter, whether John will live until then or not. The focus is on the fact I am coming again, so you follow me. No one knows the day or the hour of the Lord's return But the fact that he is coming back is known, and it is affirmed in verse 22. In fact, it is presupposed. That is a cause for wonder and worship because, you know, non-divine carpenters who lived 2,000 years ago in an obscure town in an obscure region of a tiny country in the Middle East don't come back bodily. But the God-man does. And when he comes again, as he will, it will not be as the servant savior, it will be as the king of kings. It will not be as the lamb, but the lion. No longer the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, but the lion of Judah who will come to rule and reign with a rod of iron and establish righteousness and justice at last. That is a wonder. The Lord's return is a wonder that is worth waiting and watching for. The final wonder is in the final verse of the Gospel of John, verse 25. There are also many other things, right? Think of all that we've read and seen in the Gospel of John, and John concludes by saying, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. In other words, the words and the works of Jesus Christ are so wondrous, so glorious that even the whole world could not contain them if they were written down. This is infinite glory. As I read commentaries on this verse, a lot of the guys had great things to say, but I actually think the best commentary on John 21, 25 comes from a hymn. Could we with ink the ocean fill 
and were the skies of parchment made. Were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. If we tried to write all of the glorious deeds of Christ, the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John leaves us with awe and wonder at the infinite glory of Christ. Well, as we come to the end of our series, I want to remind you of its title, Why We Believe. And in our two-year journey, the Lord has given us seven signs that point to who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. We've seen seven witnesses who testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we've had seven statements from Jesus where he declares that he is the Christ, the Son of God. These seven signs, these seven witnesses, and these seven statements conclusively prove, as John states in his thesis in John 20, 31, that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and that believing you can have life in his name. That's why we believe. But you may have noticed that throughout this series, as we've gone around, there's been eight arrows I've kind of used this graphic Zach DeYoung made, so appreciate his ministry. You may have noticed that there's always been a blank one, the one at the top. Seven signs, seven witnesses, seven statements, but here on the graphic there's eight arrows. What's the empty arrow? Throughout the series I purposely left that top arrow empty until this final message in the Gospel of John because ultimately... The reason we believe can be summarized in a single word, Jesus. We believe because of who he is and what he has done when he died on the cross for sin and rose from the dead and promised to come again. From the beginning, it's been all about him and everything should be about him, especially our lives. You, follow me. That is the message of the Gospel of John. Lord, we pray that you would take the things we've learned in the last two years from this incredible book of the Bible. Lord, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we can have life in his name. May there be no soul who misses that lesson. Lord, you are so gracious to give us so many reasons to believe, seven signs, seven witnesses, seven statements. But Lord, we know that ultimately it comes down to our heart and yours. Will we follow you? Lord, may we leave aside everything that hinders. May we leave aside every distraction and every doubt to follow you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.